Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's to the book of Romans again. Romans chapter 11. This week we will be hearing God's word recorded in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 21. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart that is present this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up the book of Romans here where the Apostle Paul continues to explain the relationship between God's covenant with the sons of Israel, variously called Jews, Hebrews, and the present situation in which the church of their promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, is filled not with Jews, but with Gentiles. He has been declaring God's judgment of the Jews for their, you remember the word, obduracy. This stubborn resistance, obduracy. He has been, the Apostle Paul, declaring God's judgment of the Jews for their obduracy against God and his only begotten son. His turning away from the Jews who have rejected the righteousness of faith for the filthy rags of their own works of righteousness. And he has turned to the Gentiles. And the Apostle Paul has been revealing God's present plan of turning from the Jews to the Gentiles, explaining that as the Apostle to the Gentiles himself, he is the chief representative of this plan. In his ministry, which he has just been magnifying in this letter to the members of the church of Rome, you remember that he said, I magnify this ministry, my ministry. The Apostle Paul has spoken of the great sadness of the Jews' hardness of heart, corporately. But he has also warned the Gentiles, who are now entering the faith and the church in droves, he is warning them not to think that this means God is done with his people permanently. He's warned the Gentiles that God is still working towards the salvation of his people, the Jews, and that they themselves, as Gentiles, have a prominent place in that plan. Well, here, you know, I have a prominent place in that plan. Yeah, you will be the object of their jealousy. Kind of relegates this prominent place, you know. Yeah, they'll be jealous of you. Doesn't that feel good? Faith in the Jewish 
Messiah on the part of the Gentiles is awakening jealousy among the Jews, and that jealousy will produce the good fruit of their turning back to God. In God's good time, which is not yet, as anyone halfway observant can see, looking across the assembled church there in Rome where the Jews are still absent, looking across our church today where the Jews are still absent. That time has not yet come. Their jealousy of us is not yet complete. And God is in control of the timing. The Apostle Paul has shared his great purpose and hope in his ministry of preaching as the Apostle to the Gentiles, saying, if somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. So, for the present, the Jews have been rejected by God. And this is clear to everybody. But what of the future? Well, in the future, the Apostle Paul greatly anticipates jealousy will bear its bountiful, heavy, sweet fruit of their salvation. Some of them will be saved, and this salvation of God's covenant people will redound not just to their blessing, but to the blessing of us Gentiles. Because if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, which world's cosmos stands for the Gentiles, he then says, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In other words, unbelievable riches to us as Gentiles. Now, though, the Apostle Paul turns back to the present crisis in the church that he has been working through with great patience, going over the same ground again and again. I saw you to Mary Lee last week, and I said, you know, that I've that I've sort of gotten tired of Romans. And she said, it's very repetitive, isn't it? And I said to her, yes, it's very repetitive. And, you know, I'm so glad I don't need that, you know, and you don't need it. But those stupid Romans. Well, the Apostle Paul is very aware of the polymorphous perversity of the people of God. You know, somebody else that was very aware of it was Moses. This last week and the week before that, I've been tripping out. Sorry, but I'm a child of the 60s. I've been tripping out over the scene where Miriam and Aaron get after Moses because he has a black wife, a Cushite wife from Ethiopia. Remember that? And man, the intensity of God at that moment. He burned with wrath against their treatment. These are his people, the Jews, the children of Israel, you know. And it says he burned with wrath against them. And so those were God's people. Christians today, the church, are God's people. And we are a piece of work. Okay, we are a piece of work. Not my mother, nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mama, nor my papa, but it's me. And the Apostle Paul writes as if we are a piece of work. The only way to explain the endless repetition of the Apostle Paul, right?
And so here in our passage this morning, we reach one of those places where the tension and conflict in the church in Rome between the Jews and the Gentiles is again the subject. It has been the subject over and over again. It's the subject again today. But today it reaches a real intensity. And we would have a tendency to think that this tension between the Gentiles and Jews is the Apostle Paul making a mountain out of a molehill. We often think that pastors make mountains out of molehills, that they don't know their people, you know. In the book Elders Reformed, I talk about one of the dangers of elders is to think that they know the feed requirements of their cattle better than the farmer. And so if you think about how preciously a farmer, a dairy farmer, will hold the feed mixture of his cattle, if any of you know anything about farming, that's a very important issue on a, on a dairy farm. And so you always have elders who are convinced that they know better than me what it is that you need. Now, it is true that there are times where I have needed and other pastors do need the elders to come alongside of us and to correct errors that we've made. Uh, my favorite uh, error corrector in this church used to be Rita Cuffey, but she went to be with the Lord, and now we have David Canfield. And every Sunday as David goes out, he says, that was a wonderful sermon, but I have an issue with you. And I would say that I probably listened to probably 50% of them. Would you say that's sort of an accurate count? You know? No, 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 it's not too many. That's David. He says probably too many. And that's, can you imagine that I would listen to David given what he just said? You probably listened to too many of them, and that's, some of you wives, take a hint. Your husband says, why, sweetheart, that's a wonderful criticism. And your response is, well, you probably shouldn't listen to me real often. Right? Is that what you wives say? Say? When your husband says he appreciates your criticism, you say, well, well, don't listen to me too much. Come on, laugh. It's funny. All right. So the Apostle Paul is being repetitiously repetitious. And it would be our temptation to think that we don't need the intensity and repetition of the Apostle Paul. We could look at the Romans and say, well, the Romans needed that repetition. But it is always the habit of pastors to know their sheep and to be repetitious at the point they need. I can remember preaching, what, 27 years ago. And I get to the text at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, For if you do not forgive the sins of your brothers, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. You know that, right? And I remember preaching, and I remember looking at a certain woman in my congregation, and her hard face. (laughs) And she had a perfect, perfectly proper place to stand against her husband. 
And I preached to her for probably over 20 years. And every time it came to bitterness, I would notice her. And she never gave it up. I'm sure she thought I was making a mountain out of a molehill. Listen, trust your pastor and trust the Apostle Paul. That if the Apostle Paul says that we tend to be racist, which is what he's saying, and that our conceit makes us condemn Jews, that's what he says, that maybe we're anti-Semitic. Now, I know there's not one person in here this morning other than Bob who's willing to cop to being anti-Semitic, you know? Bob and Daniel are Jews, and so they could safely cop. I have a friend who's a Jew, and he's very conservative and writes, and a number of years ago, I was trying to get him to, to uh, go public with the way that Bible publishers are, are twisting the word eudaioi in Greek, which is Jews. And he didn't want to do it. You know why? Because the national press had just accused him, a Jew, of being anti-Semitic. <laughs> so there's nothing more intense other than maybe black racism in the Western world today than anti-Semitism. The Apostle Paul is dealing with racism here. This is actually pertinent, applicable. This is actually engaged with us. This is what the whole world is frothing at the mouth about today. So it's not just the Romans that need it, it's you. And what you need is to have Scripture define your confession of racism and the proper response you should have to your racism. And I'm going to give you a clue this morning. The proper response to your racism should be for you simply to say, I'll stop being conceited. That's it. You know, you don't have to cut your wrists. You don't have to fire law enforcement. You have to stop being conceited. Every racial group, every ethnic group, every language, every tribe is conceited. Women are conceited against men. Now, somehow the world has been ordered in such a way that men are not conceited against women. And I know that because I'm a man. <laughs> okay, so yesterday I went to visit Charlie. He's not here. This is, by the way, the title of this sermon is Charlie's Sermon. You'll know why in a few minutes. But I went to visit Charlie, and he was banging his head against a piece of tile that he wasn't being able to cut down at Jeff and Amanda's. I got to sit down with his son, Ben, who's up here working with him. And I asked Ben what had happened to his job recently. Well, his job, he had basically resigned because he got caught in the middle of what he judged to be basically racism. And what racism was it? Well, he lives down in, well, I, I guess I shouldn't go that far and identify him, but anyhow. So, so what is the racism? Well, the racism is between a Cherokee Indian, Indian woman and Na Na Navajo women. 
The Cherokee Indian woman was the minority and the Navajos were the majority. He'd worked 17 years for the county and he quit his job. Racism is everywhere. And that's because you are selfish. Or as the the children's book says, you're a selfish pig. (laughs) Come on. Say, yeah, that's me. Go ahead. Come on. Oh, the, the only one willing to confess it is a proud Jew. We are selfish pigs. That's who we are. And our selfish piggishness goes with our corporate identity. We don't stop our selfishness with our individuality. We're selfish corporately. We're selfish about our denomination, about our church, about our town, about our state, about our race. We're selfish about our language. We're selfish about whether or not we use who or whom. And that's a corporate identity. We send signals to people that we're not a part of the great unwashed that's given up whom. I mean, honestly, it goes that far among us. The Apostle Paul is repetitious because we need it. We are proud. Now, what was the pride of the Romans? Well, we see it in the text. What he says is, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant. So apparently what was going on is the branches that were broken off, which is the Jews, all right, then had a branch of a wild olive grafted in among them who became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, let's start with the rich root. These are the covenant promises of God to the Jews through the patriarchs, the revelation of the law through Moses to the sons of Israel or Jacob, okay? So you have this huge taproot of God's wonderful gifts and graces and promises to the Jews as an ethnic people. It's ethnic specific. You could become a Jew. You could become completely proselytized into being a Jew yourself. But this was so rare as to be almost unheard of. It was an ethnic group, all right? And that ethnic group descended from Abraham, all right? That root had branches, and some of those branches were broken off. And he's speaking at his time about the fact that there aren't Jews in the church. Even though they're the people of God, they're not in the tap root. They're not in the, the trunk. They have been broken off. That's, well, I got, I'll get to that in a second. And he's speaking to those who have been grafted in among them and have become partakers with them of the rich root. Now, Here's, here's the reason that I say this is Charlie's sermon. Charlie used to work as a nurseryman up in northern Indiana, and he um, still loves trees. He was always planting trees. If I ever cut his grass and ran over one of his trees, <laughs> he didn't like it. And, uh, but they're little whips, you know, and you're 
you're going like gangbusters, and all of a sudden, <laughs> I just ran over one of Charlie's trees, you know. So I go and do obeisance. Don't worry, we're getting along okay, but he's left that property. <laughs> one of them that I ran over, he assured me it would come back, and it's now about two feet tall. Anyhow, Charlie's a nurseryman. So Charlie would catch something here that you might not catch. What does he call the Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus? He calls them a wild olive. At the time of Christ, the most commonly propagated fruit, obviously, was olives. And it was notorious at that time that wild olives never bore fruit. So to call the Gentiles wild olives was not a compliment. It was an indication that they were incapable of doing what an olive tree is made to do, which is to bear fruit. And the only trees that bore fruit were cultivated olive trees. Now, you know why you graft things into a rootstock, right? If you've had roses or you've had, I have a, uh, a lilac tree, and it all comes out of a stalk and then blossoms at the top. So it's very delicately pretty as opposed to a normal lilac that's just like everywhere, right? And what they do is they take the lilac and they graft it onto a rootstock. Now, why would you graft the flowering part of the plant onto a rootstock? Well, because the rootstock probably doesn't have any flowers at all, or the flowers are ugly. Some of you have had the experience of cutting off, uh, pruning a rose, and the next year, the rose has none of the roses you bought it to bear. Now it has just an infinite number of tiny little roses. What you did was you cut off the graft, and all that's left is the rootstock. And the rootstock is not there to give you roses. It was the graft. And that's what happens with, uh, with fruit trees. You take a beautiful cultivated branch from a cultivated tree, you graft it onto a rootstock. Why onto a rootstock? Well, because rootstocks are hardy, tenacious. You can't kill them. All right, so you take the delicate thing and you graft, now this is kind of like marriage, right? You take the delicate thing, you graft it onto the nasty, tenacious, hardy thing. And it produces fruit. And the fruit is half the tenacious, hardy, nasty thing and half the delicate, beautiful thing. Half mama and half papa. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. The Apostle Paul is talking about taking a wild, uncultivated, fruitless branch and grafting it into a cultivated root. Do you see that? Now, why would the Apostle Paul do that? Well, if you read scholars on this, the scholars will tell you that at this point, the Apostle Paul is ignorant of uh, horticulture, okay? And he does not know what the normal process of grafting is. And so, but those of us today who are smart and talk loudly in restaurants using big words know how stupid the Apostle Paul was. 
Now, I don't think that's why he did it. I don't think the Apostle Paul was stupid. First of all, he lived in an agrarian culture. Even though he was urbane and cosmopolitan, the culture was an agrarian culture. The second reason is, I think that the Apostle Paul was humiliating us Gentiles. I think the Apostle Paul knew his metaphor could sustain slapping us around a little bit while he made his point. Because that's what he does. He's saying wild olives. Well, you don't take any proud in being a wild olive branch that's grafted into the, to the root, into the tree. And so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a mistake of the Apostle Paul here. I think generally, um, I think the writers of Scripture are as smart as we are. That's my basic orientation. And I don't think we should look at Scripture and be conceited and think we know better than the authors of Scripture. Whether or not inspiration extends to the use of a metaphor like this, I have no desire to debate with you. But I do think that that this example works very well with it being flipped the way the Apostle Paul flips it. And so what he's saying is, is some of the branches, so these would be the unbelieving Jews, were broken off. This would be them being cut off from the people of God because of unbelief. They're not there in the church. And you being a wild olive, that's you as a Gentile, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. And you have to realize at this point that there are Jews who did believe Okay, and so the metaphor is getting even more mixed up because some of the branches have been broken off and are on the ground, but some of them are still in the tree. And now you're a partaker with the ones that are still in the tree, the Jews. All right, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So in the church were Jews. They were a minority. And the Christian Gentiles were arrogant towards the Jews. They looked down on the people in church with them who were Jews. And the Apostle Paul has been dealing with this over and over and over again. And when you read scripture, what you have to do is you have to think, what application is God calling me to see in this for myself? Not for your husband, not for your children, but for you. What is your snobbery? What is your arrogance? What is it? And the theme of the arrogance in the church that causes Christians to despise each other is constant through the New Testament. It's over and over again. When Paul writes the Corinthians, the, 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 the Christians in the church in Corinth, it brings him to such despair that he utters an exclamation. Do you remember what it is? You remember? He says, is, is Christ divided? Remember that? He just says, is Christ divided? And of course, our answer is no. Christ can't be divided. But you remember that when the Apostle Paul was on his trip on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? He's persecuting the church. That's Christ. So when the church is angry at each other and refusing to love each other and bitter and unforgiving, Christ is divided. 
And it's precisely that that the Apostle Paul is focusing on when he says, do not be arrogant. So, how are you arrogant? How are you arrogant? You have an answer. Tell me how you are arrogant. Huh? You have to speak for him, Scott, because I'm, I'm deaf. Yeah, being mean, that's right. But, yeah, but it has, a, it has an added part, which is looking down. A, a better question for you to ask is, how do you look down on your sisters? How do you think you're better than your sisters? You know you do. Yeah, yeah, but okay, but that's where you think they're better than you are. That was a good sin to cop to right now. It was safe. Do you want to be a girl like them? No. Well, you're in the, you're, you're, huh. So you're happy being a boy. Okay. Really? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying this morning. He says, uh, he's being taught that he's to be happy for what he has, right? I bet your dad has been saying that to you as daughters also. (laughs) Probably he's a little bit more responsive at his age than you are, right? Right? Okay, listen. It is... It's somewhat of a relief to look at this through a child's eyes. But this is serious business. This is very serious business. Because the church has always suffered division. This church today suffers division. And I know people who may be listening over uh, online would think, well, you know, they must have serious problems in their church that are causing divisions. And I say, of course we do. I don't know a time in my life when I have been at a church where it hasn't had serious divisions. And on one hand, it's a failure, but on another, it's a failure the likes of which is getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth. You got serious effluent when you get up in the morning because out of the heart, the mouth breathes. And your heart is nasty, and your mouth tastes like it. You know what I'm saying? In other words, listen, I don't want to go into bodily functions here, but those functions should teach us something. And when it comes to the church and to our male-female, Jew-Greek, slave-free, you know, I remember preaching to Glenn, and Glenn was a union man. And union men, the brotherhood, hates management. Did you know that? And Linda was the head of the union over in Nashville for years of the teachers' union. And, oh boy, the teachers' union loved the superintendent and the board of education, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure Linda worked. I know some of you are poor and single and young. And you look at yourselves as having escaped this malady. You you don't think that you have this problem. But sometimes 
the most conceited and racist people are black. They're not white, actually. Sometimes the most exclusive people are singles. Listen. The Apostle Paul is dealing with this because it's a constant in the sinful heart of man. One of the things that's grieved me in the last 20 years is to see the explosion of of young Turks who think they're reformed. And you know they think they're reformed because they immediately become conceited. And they start speaking online in a way that deprecates people who aren't reformed. Well, those of us who are reformed, no, (laughs) you know. Oh, really? So you know, huh? And one of the things that's obvious about them is they don't know nothing. You know? You see them making mistakes right and left. But they, they, they done been, they done been educated in the deeper truths of grace, you know? And they can't believe how stupid they used to be, but it's present tense, and anybody that is older sees it. So in America today, the most proud people online belonging to a sect are actually reformed. That's what I would say. I don't think anybody comes close to being as conceited as Presbyterian and reformed people. Oh, man, you show us any of the other denominations. And I don't even need more than 30 seconds. I can just show you everything that they do that is wrong. (laughs) You know? I mean, what's the point of being Presbyterian unless I can do that? You know? Listen, the Apostle Paul goes over and over and over and over again. This same subject because God's people are conceited towards one another and Christ is divided. And that's what he's dealing with. And if you think that the problems of our country are out there, if you think the problems are in Minneapolis, you're an idiot. The problems are not Minneapolis. Or rather, Minneapolis's problems are ours. The conceit of the east side of Bloomington for the west side of Bloomington you can cut it with a knife. It's awful. And we all know that the West Side sees them one and raises them ten. I despise the East Side of Bloomington. You're not going to cop to it. You're not going to cop to it? Oh, come on. Adam would not drive to the east side. He could not stand the east side. Did you know that about the most august, wonderful, perfect Adam Spadey? Yeah, yeah, he served them, but he hated to even. I remember one time he said, it's been years since I've driven to the east side. Years since he's driven to the east side. But you're all clean, right? You don't have any attitude problems, right? 
And so you say, well, no, it's not in the east side, west side. It's rather a, a Purdue versus Bloomington. And I say, no, no, that puts you in the superior position. You say, see, that's your problem. I say, no, but how do you feel about Bedford? Or Owen County? You say, well, I don't have any of those problems. I say, okay, then how do you feel about public health authorities and COVID regulations? Well, that's just truth. Yeah, you're, you're just a smarty pants. You're just a smarty pants. And all I need to do is spend a few minutes with you trying to find out where it is that you're a racist, a sexist, a, a smarty pants, where you're conceited, okay? And you are, you are. Trust me, you are. So listen, if some of the branches were broken off being Jews and you being a Gentile, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That root are the Jews. They continue to exist. They are an ethnic group. And that ethnic group you have been grafted into. You say, no, 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 no. It's God's covenant. It's his promises. I say, no, he is being very specifically ethnic here. Okay? You cannot deny this is an ethnic statement. You should be thankful and proud that you have been grafted into the Jewish ethnic root. Because that Jewish ethnic root is God's promises. It was ethnic. Listen to Calvin on this. Calvin says this. He says, It would have been as absurd for the Gentiles to boast against the Jews as far as the excellence of their race is concerned as for the branches to vaunt against their roots. <laughs> you, know? you know, imagine a branch saying, I'm a branch to the root. You know, I'm a branch. I'm up here. You're down there. I'm above in the air. You're in the soil. I'm clean. You're in the mud. It's absurd. And that's what it is for Gentiles to whoop it up on the Jews. It's absurd. If not anything else, it's absurd because our Lord and Master himself is a Jew. Okay? You will say then, now think about this. He has gone on and on and on and on and on, hasn't he? About this conflict and about the, the pride, right? He's hammered it again and again. You're a wild olive. That doesn't make you feel good about yourself. He's gone on and on. And here is where he goes next. Are you ready? Listen to this. He says, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And it's like, are you serious? Can this really be that at this particular point in this diatribe, <laughs> you know, the Apostle Paul says, you're going to say, would they really have said that at the time or was Paul stupid again? Would they have had the audacity, the bodaciousness to respond to what he said by saying, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? I mean, you have to be a glutton for punishment. Right? You have to have a, a streak of masochism in you to have had the, uh, 
Apostle Paul haranguing you, and then you say, ah, 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 branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you will say then. And that's how stubborn we are in our selfishness and in our conceit. That is who we are. You will say then. He says, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. And what is faith? It's a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Your faith was given to you by God. You were chosen by God. What do you have to brag about? Your faith is a gift. You stand by your faith. And then this lovely, wonderful, beautiful, lovely, sweet statement. Do not be conceited, but fear. Do not be conceited but fear. So a little story. Um, in the last couple of years, we have rejiggered the pastor's college so that it's now shared by all the churches in Evangel Presbytery and really any church that wants to be a part. Stephen is the dean and the principal instructor of the men preparing to be pastors. Uh, Andrew Dion is the president. Um, Jake is chairman of the board. Several of our elders are on the board and other pastors, even pastors from outside of our presbytery. And the time came, what, about a year ago, where Andrew decided it was time to get a new logo. So we got a new name, and the new name is New Geneva Academy. But then we needed a logo. And so Andrew came up with the logo. And I'd like you to put the logo up, if you would, please. So this is the new logo. And you see the Latin at the bottom there. But now, here is the inspiration for the logo, all right? This. Now, what do you see? Let's start with the branches that have been broken off. Do you see them? Those are the Jews, right? You get it. Who is the man? Who's the man? Come on, who's the man? Yeah, of course. It's the Apostle Paul. So the branches of the Jews, the Apostle Paul is pointing to the branches and saying what? Well, what is the Latin? Do not be conceited. So this is a printer's mark, which is an identification of a publisher or printer from 500 years ago. And this printer, whose name was... I keep forgetting his name. His name was Robert Estienne. He lived from 1503 to 1559. And he was one of the principal printers during the time of the Reformation, the magisterial reformers. He printed the first critical edition of the Greek New Testament. And that edition is the edition that we get 
the tradition of the Textus Receptus from. That defines the Textus Receptus, which is the Greek, the received text, okay? He printed the which edition of the Institutes? Um, I forget which edition it was, 1556, I want to say. Um, what they would do is they want to identify the print shop that had handled the publishing of a particular book, and that printer would have a printer's mark. This was his printer's mark. He's the guy that broke up the New Testament into verses. It didn't have verses until he printed it. He's the guy also who decided that instead of being at the end of the New Testament, the book of Acts should be in between the four Gospels and the epistles. So he moved it there. He was a scholar. All four of his sons went into the same business. He called them to join him in his work. One of his sons, he pressured to learn Hebrew, all right, which was sort of exotic at the time. It still is, by the way, <laughs> I think. Um, and so this man, wanting to identify his work, and his work was very respectable. It was the work of a scholar. It was a work at the center of all the ferment of the Reformation and humanism at the time. He wanted what? Well, look at, look at his printer's mark. He wanted to identify himself as being a man who feared God. Do you see that? It says, don't be conceited, but fear. And how could you not fear the branches in the printer's mark are falling onto the ground? So Andrew took that, and let's go back to the previous. And working with Ben Crum came up with this logo. Do not be conceited at the bottom. New Geneva Academy and the tree. Now, when I saw this, I said to Andrew, oh, Andrew, it's not negative enough for me. I said, the other one has just branches willy-nilly falling all over the place, and it warns you in a way that this one doesn't. So I was given a concession from Ben through Andrew. Andrew was a little worried about going to Ben about this, you know. It was like, I don't know that I can go back to Ben. You know how artists are. They're so easy to work with. You, you know what I'm saying? You know. <laughs> okay. So you see the concession is, or was that already in the original? That was a concession. Was it really a concession? Okay. See the concession on the left side? See it's cut off? Do you know that they had guys that designed the lead that they use for the printing press, Right? And they design fonts. And one of the first fonts that this guy had a designer, a typographer design for him, the name was the Greek font for the Greek New Testament. Okay? And do you know what that guy's name was? I know Ben knows it. Do any of the rest of you know it? His name was Garamond. Isn't that interesting? So here you have a man who is universally respected. He's a Protestant Christian. He's probably, I, my guess was very wealthy. About a half of the economy of Wittenberg at the time of Luther was printing. 
So it would be like living in Silicon Valley today. And here he has, is his printer's mark, do not be conceited. But what? Fear. And so I want to close with this. It is imperative that you fear God. I know you're tired of hearing me talk about this. But I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. You must fear God. If you don't fear God, you will never cling to God. Because what drives you to cling to God is the fear of God. You will never cling to God until your own self-examination has made you see exactly what you are. And then you'll run to him and you will cling to him. Now I know at this point all of you are aching for me to talk about, wow, this is, this is not... This is not the fear of dread, of, of being scared. This is the reverent fear, the kind of fear that, that, that doesn't fear God. You wouldn't put it that way, but that's what you're thinking because you just can't wrap your mind around the fact. But you realize that in Scripture it says over and over again that about the most wicked, that they have no fear of God. And the fear of God is not antithetical to loving God. This is the lie of our court systems and our ad litems and our social workers and counselors and school systems. Everybody is just trying to get you to cuddle up to death and to cuddle up to anything that a normal person would be afraid of, you know? And then they are so over the top in protecting our bodies that Kids grow up without ever having met any risk to them. You know, that's why we all revolt against masks, if you really want to know my opinion about masks. Masks are the exact same um, attitude and posture of a government that causes us not to be able to swim in any of the wonderful quarries around here. It just infuriates me. You never knew that about me. It infuriates me that we cannot swim in the quarries. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? And I bet anything that they took away that wonderful sledding hill over by Tri-North when they redid it. Did they take away the sledding hill? Of course they did. I, I didn't know that, but I'm just, of course, that's the reason that they redid Tri-North was so that Hannah couldn't hit her bum on that wonderful jump that was in the woods over there, you know? Our government makes a huge show of protecting us from danger and leads us straight into the very wickedness that God says is an abomination to him. The very wickednesses that caused him to tell the Israelites to wipe out all the residents in Canaan. So yes, government is insuperable today. Government will do everything it can 
to keep you from fearing God. But you must fear God. And fearing God is the antidote to being conceited. Because the minute you begin to look at God for who he is and not who you would like to make him out to be, and you realize it's not Tim Bailey with whom you have to do, (laughs) it's God. And Tim Bailey ain't nothing. Your father ain't nothing. Your wife ain't nothing. It's God with whom you have to do. Then you're humbled and you become meek and you become submissive. And you even become submissive to the very authorities that are trying to lead you away from fearing God. Just like the Apostle Paul with Rome and the emperor. So I'm going to stop now. Do not be conceited, but fear. Because in the God we fear and love embrace. And when you learn to fear God, you will become comfortable with God. And you say, oh, no, no, not comfortable. And I say, okay, Maybe that isn't a good word, but you will cling to him feeling safe. That's what I mean by comfortable. You will cling to him knowing you must, and you will feel safe clinging to him because you'll know that's what you were made for. You were made for him. And your heart is not at rest until it rests in him. And he is to be feared. And none of this is contradictory, okay? Our Father, we pray that you will awaken in us the righteous fear that causes us to cling in faith to the active and to the passive obedience of our precious Lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.